Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Welcome to Off the Record with Matt Robeson and Paul Hodes here on WKXLAM and FM, streaming live over the internet at nhtalkradio.com, where all our shows are archived for your binge listening pleasure. We are also a podcast on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes. So anywhere you travel in the known universe, you can listen to Off the Record to your heart's content. We're joined today by Ryan McConaughey. He's one of the premier policy experts in Washington, D.C., and he's a particular expert on how the Senate works, how the Senate Democratic Caucus works, and how to turn what we'd like to call policy trash into messaging treasure. He spent more than five years as the staff director of the Democratic Policy and Communications Center in the U.S. Senate under Democratic leader Chuck Schumer, where he led issue strategy and message planning for all of the very well-spoken Democratic senators. Uh, He's also led um, the economic program at prominent D.C. think tank Third Way. He's worked in the U.S. House. He's worked on Senate campaigns, including for our very good friend Sheldon Whitehouse of Rhode Island. And now he's a partner at Forbes Tate, where he helps build smart advocacy and issue campaigns. Ryan, welcome to Off the Record. Thank you. Thank you for, uh, for having me, uh, Congressman. I'm still referring to you as Mr. and Congressman, uh, you know, from our, our time together in the fight in 106th Congress. Uh, with you. Oh, yeah. It was, that, was a, that was a great time. And you worked for my great friend, John Hall, the fabulous musician, uh, we had a great time together. John and I formed a band briefly called Holland Hodes, which was six ways of double entendre to make a play on what we were doing. But we, uh, we, had, we had a good time in the 106th. There's nothing like being in the majority and then seeing a Democratic president elected. Yep, that so, was an exhilarating time. And uh, yeah, hope, hopefully one that uh, will come again very shortly. Well, I'm, I'm glad you said that, because I have to say, when I saw the recent announcement and speeches by Vice President Biden and Senator Kamala Harris, his pick for vice president, I felt the stirrings of hope and the heartbeat, uh, the soft whisper of change. I actually felt hopeful for the first time in a long time about politics. And you're about as plugged in as it gets in D.C. So um, tell us, what's the view on the pick from the inside? How are Democrats reacting? How are senators reacting? What's the sense of it there? Sure. So I think it, uh, look, I'll I'll start with the Democrats since that's, that's, you know, what I know best. I think, look, Democrats are united and excited. Um, I think that they get in Senator Harris somebody who is job ready from day one, um, 
who rounds out the ticket uh, generationally and demographically and makes that ticket look like the democratic coalition in the country, which was, you know, a major, a major need, quite frankly. Um, you know, and also somebody who's going to be a really formidable presence on, uh, on the campaign trail. I don't think there's any question, you know, that uh, people, are, people are looking ahead from how she's performed in the hearing room to how she might perform on the debate stage with Vice President Pence. So uh, I think uh, Democrats feel very, very good about this pick, about the energy she's, she brings to the ticket. Um, and Republicans are certainly going to, uh, you know, going to criticize her and going to attack her, you know, um, they are sort of going with their ready-made, you know, attacks about being too left, about being a socialist. Um, but, you know, it seems clear that similarly with what they've tried with Vice President Biden, that's the attack they're going to go with. It doesn't necessarily fit. Uh, you know, Senator Harris is not out of central casting for that role. And, you know, I think, um, you know, in their quieter moments, Republicans might admit that they didn't get the unforced error that they might have been hoping for. Interesting. So just let me, let me, can I follow up oh, for no, a quick ahead, second on that? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. So uh, let's assume, let's, let's, let's just put a quick crystal ball on uh, what happens. And we've got to, we, as we move forward, um, Senator Harris leaves her Senate seat. Um, anybody making book on, on who it's going to be and, and uh, who's, who's going to, who's going to get the nod out in California? Okay, well, first of all, first things first, uh, you know, I, I, I didn't want to be Debbie Downer, uh, but I was having this conversation and I got a little snarky uh, with somebody. I said, who got appointed to fill Tim Kaine's seat? Um, because mm -hmm. first things first, uh, you know, victory in November. But assuming that happens, um, you know, I think that obviously uh, this, the vice presidential search certainly elevated Karen Bass, who also, all, who was already, uh, a prominent figure in the party in California as the, the head of the CBC. Um, so I think, you know, a lot of the uh, early speculation is about her. Uh, I think there will be, um, you know, a definite interest in making sure that there, you know, given, given that the, the Senate is still predominantly white and male and that, uh, you know, Senator Harris is a woman of color, there'll, there'll be, that'll be a consideration. Uh, so I think that, you know, we'll, we'll see what Governor Newsom does, um, but it seemed, and, and I, I don't think it's, it's sort of an open and shut case for, for Congresswoman Bass, but uh, she has poll position, I think, uh, in, at the outset. Hmm. I'd be, uh, I mean, if I, if I had to put a dollar, I, I'd, I'd go with Secretary of State Alex Padilla. That's just a total shot in the dark, but uh, who knows? All right, on to a, on to a slightly different topic here. So, um, speaking of the hoped for uh, victory in November, you know, I, I, I'm in the midst of writing an article and uh, Ryan generously provided a quote for me earlier this week, should be out uh, on Monday. Uh, and we got into this conversation about the need to save democracy first um, as sort of the first order of business. If Democrats manage to not only take back the presidency, but fingers crossed here, managed to retake the Senate and actually have unified control in Washington and the ability to move the agenda. And, you know, Ryan, you shared a really great insight with me. Um, I, I, I loved it, that politics on the outside really drives politics on the inside. Um, you know, when people talk about how the Senate has really become more and more dysfunctional. And, and your point was that we have to turn voting back into an expression of consensus rather than an expression of motivation. It just seems like increasingly elections have become more about motivating turnout on your side than persuasion. 
And that's been particularly true for Republicans. So your theory seemed to me, but I'd like you to try and walk us through it, that if we can unlock that, it might help fix our politics and, and, and then feed back into institutions like the Senate, make them more functional again. Can, can you walk us through that, um, what you're thinking is there? Sure. Uh, and, I, and I think, you know, it's very easy to look at what happens sort of on the Senate floor or, you know, to a degree in the House in terms of the, you know, the procedural back and forth or, uh, you know, the day-to-day -day sparring. Um, but really, you know, what happens in under the dome is determined by what happens out in the country. And, you know, uh, really what happens once you're in Congress is more of a symptom than a cause. And what I really think is that, you know, if you deal with the underlying issues in the political culture, then the, the procedural issues are the things that happen. You know, th those issues then become academic. They're an expression of what's happening in the political realm and the political dynamics will always overwhelm the procedural ones. So, you know, there's always gonna be pressure for leaders to avoid exposing vulnerable members to bad votes or respond to outside forces. Um, you know, members want to get things done, um, but the reality is they have to navigate the political system that got them to Washington in the first place. So I'm not, I'm not trying to dismiss reforms out of hand, um, but if you only focus on that, you're really not getting to the root of the problem. Um, you know, the bottom line is, if you want to change the output from Congress, which I think we can all agree we want a more functional, you know, uh, more, you know, more productive Congress, uh, you've got to change the input. Um, so if you'll, you know, if you'll indulge me in some wonkery, um, uh, I'll talk about some Ar Senator Arcana, specifically filling the. We, we love wonkery on this show. We're we're all about it. Oh yeah, I mean wonk wonkery are us. Yes. So we're okay. Well then we'll th then this is this is for you. We're gonna go go deep into procedure here. Uh, you know, people have talked a lot about the process of so-called filling the tree in the Senate. Um, so in the Senate, between the majority leader having the ability to control the floor, and various rules about the order of amendments and how they can be considered. Um, basically, the, by filing amendments strategically, the majority leader can block the ability of other senators to offer an amendment. So it basically shuts out. So, so let me make sure I understand that, just, just for our listeners. So what you're saying is that Mitch McConnell basically has complete control in practice, forget theory. In practice, Mitch McConnell can make it so that Democrats can't amend anything. So you have a big piece of legislation. It can just be Mitch McConnell's way or the highway. That's right. And, and quite frankly, it's not just Democrats, it's other Republicans too. But of course, that's, you know, um, defending against minority amendments is, is usually what the, what the goal is there. So, so yes, he can exert that control. Um, and so, you know, at various times, people have kicked around, you know, reform ideas about sort of guaranteeing the minority, you know, a minimum number of amendments and sort of not allowing the tree to be filled, you know, by, by sort of, you know, changing that norm or that rule. Um, and so you could do that, and that may be, you know, a positive development in and of itself. But uh, to this larger point about the outside dynamics, where the, you know, where you have more voices, um, you know, more, you know, a bigger push, you know, for for positive change or, or or a specific piece of legislation, you know, that could lead to better legislation. But in a system where the politics are still so hot and the velocity of the debate is so fast, which is where we really are now. Um, it could really just lead to gotcha votes that aren't necessarily constructive legislating. They're just another, you know, another politics by another form. Uh, Congressman, you know, your time in the House, you remember the motion to recommit, um, which is uh, abs absolutely right. And I so, do. <laughs> yes, and and it what what it is on paper 
a guaranteed ability for the minority to offer an amendment to improve legislation just turns into a firing drill uh, or, a, or a fire drill where, you know, they come up with a surprise gotcha thing that, that, that is just built to be used in a political ad that doesn't actually help the legislative process at all. So, again, that's a procedure. So, so let, me, let me make sure I understand then. So what you're saying is people talk about fixing procedure. And, and, and under your example, it's kind of like what Paul went through in the House. You know, you could, you could do one of these deals to fix procedure. But if you don't fix the underlying politics, people are going to weaponize it and they're going to use it to, I don't know, offer an amendment to force someone like Paul Hodes to vote in favor of creating a puppy crushing factory that does nothing but crush puppies 24 hours a day. And that oh, puts him in a oh, horrible political position oh and stops meaningful legislation from moving forward. So unless you fix the outside dynamics, people are still going to be incentivized to do all of that stuff, no matter what you do with the rules on the inside. That, that's right. To paraphrase Jurassic Park, politics finds a way. Um, and so if you don't have the, you don't think, fix the things that are outside, you tinkering with the things on the inside won't actually make the place work better or accomplish, you know, any party or any political movement's goals, uh, meaningfully. So just to, just to put a fine point on it, are we saying that there really is no fix for, um, political chicanery uh, inside the legislative body because uh, the folks there are always going to find a way to use the rules to uh, do some kind of mischief and that the only solution is to make sure that those who are making the mischief are of the political persuasion we favor. Well, I, I don't. I don't want to be quite so um, black and white about it. I think there, are, you know, there's still, you know, things that you can do in terms of the budget process, or uh, you know, other other way, other pieces of ways that legislation is brought to the floor. Um, you know, I don't want to rule rule any internal refinement out of hand. I mean, there there are positive things, but I view them as as you know not sufficient unless you're doing the work outside as well. Well, I do well, think one we, of the points you brought up yeah. with me. Uh, uh, I, I, I'm guessing we probably have to go to break in a minute, but uh, yeah, I really like the idea that, you know, uh, Ryan, back when you and I were doing campaigns, you know, you always used to try and figure out who among the electorate you had to persuade and who you had to turn out, right, on your, on your path to victory. And it seems like what's happened over the last decade increasingly is that you don't worry so much about who you have to persuade. You only worry about riling up people to turn them out. And with that set of incentives, going on on the outside, you're never going to fix what's broken in our government on the inside. Matt, we're going to give you that last word for this segment. It's Off the Record with Matt Robeson and Paul Hodes here on WKXL AM and FM, streamed live at nhtalkradio.com. We're talking with supreme strategist and political guy, Ryan McConaughey, and we're talking about what goes on inside the Beltway, inside the chambers, uh, in the political world these days, Matt Robeson, my co-host, writes for the Alternate and has a blog, themoreperfectunionforum.com. I'm Paul Hodes on Off the Record. We're going to take a short break. We'll be right back after this. Don't go away. We're back 
It's off the record with Paul Hodes and Matt Wobison on WKSL AM and FM streaming live for your binge listening pleasure at nhtalkradio.com podcast on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes. We're talking with Ryan McConaughey, who's worked on the Hill, that's political speak, for the Senate and the Congress for Third Way, a terrific think tank, and now a partner at Forbes Tate, where he helps build smart advocacy and issue campaigns. And we're talking about the the, the way politics works. So, Ryan, I want to say, let's take a, a trip through the Senate crystal ball. Assume with me the happy prospect that the Dems retake the Senate. So it sounds like you and Matt may agree that one of the first things, a high priority, is to put a pro-democracy reform bill uh, front and center. But then there's going to be this logjam of things that the Senate Dems want to do and huge pressure from across the Democratic spectrum, from the far left to whatever the center now is, to focus on different priorities. So I want to put you in the chair. Uh, You've got your crystal ball in front of you. You're in the chair. You are directing the strategy. What's the order of priorities here? Is the list different if we're talking political perspective versus substantive perspective? How do you, how do you, how do you set the course? What, What does it look like for us? Well, I think that your, your early items are probably locked in by circumstance. And from there, you're kind of balancing those considerations. So uh, unfortunately, and hopefully this isn't the case, but I think we have to, to plan this way that, uh, you know, we'll still be dealing with the pandemic uh, and, you know, we won't have the economy, you know, back on its feet necessarily by the time, you know, we roll into January. Um, you know, so those will be ongoing emergencies, you know, things that the vice president has, you know, said that he wants to tackle right away. Um, So I think, you know, not dissimilar to, uh, you know, 2009, uh, you know, when when you had the financial crisis and the Recovery Act came up early, I think, you know, emergency circumstances will dictate the first items out of the box. And then, then you get to those forks in the road where you balance the policy and, and the substance, and there will be you know, the big issues uh, will, will be healthcare, you know, climate, um, depending on how the economy is doing, uh, it could actually one week be infrastructure week. Uh, so I think if, you know, if, you know, depending on, on how fast and, and how much uh, assistance the economy needs, you could see an investment piece like that prioritized before moving on to healthcare or climate. Um, if not, one of those other issues could, could displace it, but it'll be, partly driven uh, by the politics and then also, um, you know, partly driven by the fact that, uh, you know, these aren't necessarily uh, things that the Congress can only work on one at a time. I mean, there would be a little bit of a race, uh, you know, among committee chairs and among, uh, you know, lead authors. And I think part of the, uh, part of what determines what will come up is how fast, you know, those bill authors and those leaders can get consensus on a product and get it to the floor. So, uh, you know, all that, that factors in. That's not the, uh, you know, um, so I don't think it'll be a set order. I think it'll be a combination of, uh, you know, the urgency of the moment and the feasibility of acting in that moment. So let's continue Paul's scenario for a second, because it's a happy place for us all to live in. So you've got a President Biden, you've got a Senate majority, you're sitting in the chair 
um, reprising your old job, which, by the way, was not just to evaluate policy, but to figure out how to communicate it. And look, I mean, we all know, just to take us out of our happy place for a second, we know the pattern here. And the party that doesn't hold the White House, in this case, the Republicans, has gained seats in Congress in every single midterm election since 1946. And we know that the most likely thing the Republicans are going to try and do if they find themselves out of power is rerun that 2009 playbook, try to recoalesce as a party in opposition to a big, scary, overreaching socialist agenda. So how should Democrats try to communicate about their agenda here so that it doesn't play into those Republican hands and doesn't disappoint their own left flank? It's a really narrow needle to thread there. Is there a formula for that? How would that work? Yeah, so I think there is a formula, and I think that uh, you know certainly given given the the dire nature of the times, you know the environment's a little bit a, a little bit different um, than it's even been previously. Although uh, you know certainly you could you could look for for Republicans to suddenly rediscover um, their convictions on things like the deficit. Uh, but I think it's not there is a formula. It's not a magic formula, but it's you know Democrats need to keep the values, the goals, and the impacts of their solution front and center. Um, you know. It's a cliche, Democrats are the party of the head, Republicans are party of the heart. Um, you know, it's a little bit tired, but it's also a little bit true. Um, you know, policymakers are there to make policy. They, they, have, they are ideas people. They really like to get into the weeds of how something would work. Um, but when you get into that, you, you lose the fundamental reason that you're there, you're doing something in the first place. So I think it's first, you know, focus on why these solutions, you know, help people. What is the value? You know, um, it's not about, you know, raising the premium tax credit 5% or, you know, putting up, you know, um, or incentivizing, you know, or, or a 3% jump in how you incentivize windmills. It's because we need cleaner air, you know, different energy solutions, more affordable health care, um, because that's, that's something that makes our country stronger. So it's, you know, it's got to be, it's got to be in that values framework about what Democrats believe. Um, and then demonstrating the impact and how it's in a way that's understandable for people, not in billions of dollars for the economy, although you need to do that too, but, you know, in a, you know, a middle-class tax cut that's going to mean $1,000 in your pocket, um, and then sort of what's going to mean in your community, you know, we always try and localize the data state by state, county by county, um, to make it real to people, and then if, if people know that you're doing it for a value-based, value, what you're doing, you're doing for a values-based reason, it's a thing that's going to help them um, and they feel like they can understand it. A lot of the sort of, you know, demagoguing attacks are, you know, those arrows are going to fall short. So let, let me, let me ask about that, the sense of communication and messaging. Matt and I have had a lot of discussions over a long time about the point you raised uh, that Democrats are the party of the head and Republicans are the party of the heart. And our discussions have been, you know, Democrats' policy is always better for people, and Republicans have always managed to make messages that, that reach people um, in their gut as opposed to their heads. And when folks go into the voting booths, they're voting with their gut, not with their brain. And so uh, that's where Republicans come out on top because they understand that messaging and communication are all about the emotional resonance of what's being communicated. Uh, are, is, is, when you're talking about values-based communication, 
Is it the same thing as emotionally resonant communication or is that something else? And, and if we're thinking about uh, transforming Democrats from the party of the head to the party capable of emotionally resonant messaging, uh, is it possible? Can Democrats get out of their heads enough to, to actually speak in, in language that voters understand and that, and that appeal to voters' emotions instead of their intellect? Is it possible? Oh, yes, absolutely. It's possible. It's, it's been done. Uh, you know, and it and it goes to uh, you know part a big part of it is 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 this, is telling a story and and tell it and, and have and placing, you know, placing these ideas in in a context where people can see them you know, um, you know you know you know how they would act in the real world by highlighting you know um, you know families that would be helped sort of a representative family that you know this this family would be able to afford. Uh, you know, to save a little bit more for retirement or maybe to, you know, to have, you know, paid sick leave so they could take care of a, of a loved one because, you know, you, 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 because you've got that in your family. So again, it's, it's about sort of putting it in, in a, in a story that is understandable, that is relatable. And that's where you get to the heart because people, people feel it because it connects with them. And, you know, President Clinton did that. President Obama did that. Um, Vice President Biden is doing that right now by by telling so much of his story and about the core values of why he's running for office. He's not running on a 30 point plan. He is running on, you know, a fight for the soul of America. And that is a very resonant theme. So certainly, um, I'd say there's more than hope for Democrats. I think Democrats are doing that well. They just need to, to remember to keep doing it. So as my people say, from your lips to God's ears. We hope that that Democrats hear what you're saying and that every single Democrat goes out and tells stories and speaks from their heart and 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 leaves a lot of the the plans and policy wonk uh, aside um, because people are not tuned into details. They want to know. I mean, folks are hurting. And I think that uh, values based or emotionally resonant messaging is what's going to be necessary now. When, when I was fortunate enough to be in the majority in Congress, uh, we had to rescue the nation from a financial crisis. And then Barack Obama spent his uh, political capital on the beginning of health insurance coverage and health care reform. And, and of all the things that happened, that's about what folks may remember. Um, now, you know Congress inside out. You know what the senators uh, and, and the Senate, uh, are, you know what they're thinking and how they work. Let's, let's assume we survived the pandemic. We survived the Trump administration. We've got a looming calamity in the existential um, problem of climate change and global warming. So what are the prospects for getting a big climate bill done given the political dynamics in Congress. Now, remember, folks, in 2009, we passed a cap-and-trade bill in the House uh, to try to control carbon, only to have it die a miserable death in the Senate. So what are the parameters of a climate deal? Can it happen? What, could it, what might it look like? And will we get everything we want? 
Sure. Well, I, I think it might, it's actually useful. I'm glad you mentioned 2009 because I think it's useful to, to zoom back a little bit and talk about the ways that some things are different now. Um, you know, you look at, first of all, the situation is, is more dire. Um, you know, this morning there was a report that coal generation is only down 8% during the pandemic. Um, and to head off the worst effects of climate change, it needs to fall by 13%. Uh, with emissions, even with basically a you know, a virtual global, you know, standstill on the economy, um, you know, addition, emissions reductions only, only got close to tracking the reductions we need to see on a consistent basis to, to head off locking in the worst climate change effect. So, you know, the, there, there's more of a predicate now. And in, even in areas where there's been, you know, potentially climate skepticism in the past, you've had now in the Midwest flooding, uh, drought, you know, severe weather that's, you know, that's, that's keeping farmers from, from planting and harvesting crops. And, you know, even in rural America, there's polling that shows that there's a majority of support for action on climate change. So you, you've got, you've got more of a desire and you've got more, but, but because the problem is bigger, I think it's actually more effective to talk about what a climate strategy is going to look like rather than a climate bill. So you've got legislation um, and certainly, you know, Senator, Senator Manchin would be the chair of the Energy Committee. You know, Senator Carper would be the chair of the EPW Committee, and they would have to sort of bridge the caucus on that. And so, you know, in a bill, not, you know, I think you have a chance to get a lot, you know, ranging from, you know, renewables to advanced nuclear, you know, to a lot of uh, different things. Um, you know, not everyone will get everything. Um, but outside of that bill, you know, you've actually got this really interesting thing that's been developing where the private sector, specifically the financial sector, has really started taking on leadership by changing their investment portfolios, divesting from, from dirty energy, prioritizing investment in clean energy, uh, you know, forming uh, informal standards you know, or sort of non-government standards like the Climate Finance, Par Finance Partnership or the Climate Leadership Finance Initiative. They basically get the, try, try to get the private sector moving on this already. And you've got regulators at the Fed and the CFTC talking about the need to adopt disclosure and sustainability standards. So I think there's, even as Congress considers this, there's gonna be a lot of work uh, between pri the private sector and between non-traditional regulators, not just the EPA, but on the financial side, uh, to try and use the, the power of capitalism to, to get on board because you're gonna need legislation and the markets to solve this problem. Um, <laughs> increasingly, you know, the markets are seeing that this is a financial risk. If the 30-year the mortgage is one of the bedrocks of the financial system, but you've got constant flooding and, and you know, severe weather that makes that mortgage unreliable, you've got a systemic risk um, you know, that, is, that, is, that is massive in scale. So um, I think there's going to be yep. a lot that happens on climate, both in, in the chamber and uh, you know, on Pennsylvania Avenue and, out, you know, and on Wall Street on this, quite frankly. This is Off the Record with Matt Robeson and Paul Hodes on WKXLAM and FM, streamed live at nhtalkradio.com. We're talking with strategist Ryan McConaughey about the crystal ball approach to politics following this election. Don't go away, folks. We'll be back after this. We're back. It's off the record with Paul Hodes and Matt Robertson on WKXL AM and FM, streamed live over the internet at nhtalkradio.com, where you can find our show's archive for your binge listening pleasure. We're a podcast on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes. 
My co-host, Matt Robeson, writes for the Alternate, and he is the proprietor of a moreperfectunionforum.com, a blog that digs deep into the underbelly of American politics. We're talking with Ryan McConaughey, strategist extraordinaire, about what we might expect looking ahead in the political crystal ball. So, Matt, I think you have the next question. I do, and I have a hobby horse of an issue that I have ridden right into this radio program. Um, but it's not just my personal hobby horse anymore. You know, I think the pandemic has brought a bunch of issues that were sort of a little under the surface, up to the surface. And one of them that's really gotten a lot of attention is the, the desperate need for child care as a way to support working families and fill in some of the gaps that working people have in taking care of their kids and making ends meet. We've talked before about the middle-class squeeze, the way over the last 20 years, costs for uh, living expenses have gone up uh, dramatically and real incomes have stayed the same. So one of the biggest ones of those is, is, is around childcare. So in general, Ryan, because you're super plugged in um, to all the ferment going on in DC, um, what are you hearing in terms of the thinking going on about changing our approach to the economy, to work, supporting working parents? And do you think that there's going to be any momentum to take a real run at the child care gap? Uh, yeah, I think that that momentum is there. And you hit the nail on the head in terms of, uh, you know, the pandemic uh, not necessarily creating issues, uh, but exposing them. And, you know, even before the pandemic, uh, you look at, at the state of childcare in this country, and it's, it's a major strain on parents. It's also just a, a major economic strain. Um, I think, you know, in, you know, the average cost of sending two children to daycare right now outpaces the median rent across the country, every state. Um, so you, you have, you have that, you know, parents are struggling to figure out how to, how to do this. And now it's every, I don't know a parent in this country that isn't struggling with how they're going to work, uh, how they're going to, you know, either provide childcare if they want to send their child to a childcare center, even if it's open. Um, so, I mean, this is, no, this, this is an issue that, uh, certainly hits home and is ripe for action. Um, you know, particularly, I mean, look, we, we often look, talk about, uh, you know, different different geographies. I mean, you know, 60% of rural Americans live in a childcare desert. And just in general, in rural America, you've got to drive more, you've got, you, you, you've got farther distances to go. So uh, you know, like many, many things that sort of, you know, if they hit the country hard, they're hitting rural America a little bit harder. So every, everyone in every region of the country is feeling this. Um, so I think, you know, one of the things, you know, my, um, you know, one of my colleagues, uh, Adrian Schweer, is a fellow at the Bipartisan Policy Center. She she leads their task force on paid family leave, and you know that's that's a first step on this. Um, you know we've got to recognize you know two thirds of people have said that you know if they could have paid family leave, it would be easier for them to get back to work once they stop. Um, that's a real solution that's been on the table. There's been progress. There are you know Republican and Democratic bills on this um, that don't necessarily 100% align, but you've got some bipartisan consensus on it, and I think the outcry as we get to September and, you know, a lot of schools go virtual, people don't know what they're going to do, um, is really going to swell up. So I think, 
Um, this is one of those things that I would look for to probably be included in a, that first tranche of sort of recovery and, and sort of COVID response pieces. Um, you know, because I think it's, it's also just right now is exposed how much we rely on the public school system as childcare as well. And so that's, that factors into this too. Um, I want to follow up with a somewhat out, outside the box uh, question. And uh, that is, we have now um, got about 11% unemployment, um, uh, although we just fell below 8 million new unemployment claims this week, which everybody is trying to look at as a sign of progress. But the pandemic may last for another year. We may have massive unemployment continuing, businesses shuttering, um, the, the economy reeling in a way that it has not since uh, perhaps the Great Depression. Uh, comparatively, the 2008-2009 financial collapse uh, was child's play compared to what we're dealing with. Um, Andrew Yang popularized the idea of a universal basic income. Now, I raise that in the context that, that we've seen billions and billions and coming to trillions of dollars of relief being talked about um, for the American public to try to hold the fort while the economy recovers. Is anybody thinking about some more, some deeper structural changes that might include something like a universal basic income approach to, to tiding us over and maybe continuing? And I say that with the knowledge that it was President Nixon, I believe, who tried to pass UBI um, way, way, way back, uh, way back when. And economist Milton Friedman said, you know, trickle down only works if there's a universal basic income. So it's not as radical a notion as some might think. Is anybody talking about it? I think that's, I mean, certainly it has a higher profile. And I think that, you know, the Yang candidacy really did an effective job of, of raising this issue. And, and I think it, it exists in part of the broader debate about how the economy is going to work going forward. I think in the immediate term, so much of what's been happening in Washington right now is just, you know, let, let alone long-term UBI, uh, you know, the fight over just extending the current unemployment benefits, uh, you know, and, and with the with the extra six hundred dollars, uh, you know, to, that people need, and you know, battling the Republican attacks that this is somehow a disincentive for work, which is you know just just not accurate. Um, you know, I, so I, I think, um, quite frankly, so much of the focus in this space in terms of cash assistance has been on just trying to get you know those those benefits extended. Um, and then possibly including another stimulus payment in, in the, you know, in heroes or, or whatever heroes becomes in the Senate um, that, you know, that, that thinking may be a little bit further off because we just have such immediate assistance needs right now that still aren't getting out of Congress and, and onto the president's desk. So I want to talk for a moment about earmarks. Um, in, in his article, uh, Matt um, talks about the connection between Congress losing the constitutional power of the purse because the budget process is so bogged down. The fact that we don't have earmarks anymore. I mean, when I was in Congress, it was uh, both my belief and politically uh, appropriate to uh, say earmarks are not why we were sent here. We ought to get rid of them. Matt, 
uh, even says earmarks are actually more democratic because they give elected representatives more power to guide where tax dollars go versus the bureaucrats in the agencies. So is, does Matt have a point? Can earmarks make the budget process work again? Yeah, I think, I think Matt has a great point. I say that whether I believe it or not, but I do believe it in this case. Um, <laughs> we'd always say that we'd always say nice things about Matt, but, but, but yeah, I, I have a great point. It's at the top of my head, but I have a great point. <laughs> no, I, but I think, uh, so, so look, I think certainly there were, there were abuses in the past. And I think everybody remembers the dark days of sort of, you know, Jack, Ab the Jack Abramoffs of the world. Um, and you, you need to watch the bridge the, to nowhere, right? Like, was yeah. that, was that the, the worst bridge of them? To or, nowhere. The bridge to or nowhere. The Lawrence, Welk, uh, the Lawrence Welk Museum uh, parking lot, I think was, uh, that was pretty bad. Right. But I think overall, I mean, the, the attacks on, on earmarks tend to be, um, you know, a bit overblown. They're, they're not a large part of the budget. They don't create inflationary pressures on the budget. And quite frankly, they're more transparent um, than what's happening now because earmarks have just become phone marks where there's not an earmark in the bill, but then, you know, members of Congress just call the administration and try to get money moved. Um, but also, I think the more fundamental thing about it and, and about the way that, that, it, that it could help rehab the institution is, you know, it's the ability for, for lawmakers to have non-ideological achievements. Um, you know, it, it's a major way for lawmakers to deliver for their districts and their states um, in, in ways that benefit everyone. And when you limit the ability of lawmakers to, to sort of represent the people that they've been sent to serve, you know, in terms of knowing which, which projects are needed and which are best, you also take away the ability to achieve something and then you're just left with hot button issues. And that just, you know, when that's all that you have as a differentiator that raises the temperature and drives the extremes and leads to some of the other problems that we, we started off this conversation talking about. So earmarks actually, I'm just thinking earmarks actually smooth, can sort of smooth over some of the partisanship that exists because instead of just wrangling about issues, lawmakers each can then point to some achievements. And if the earmarks are doled out fairly uniformly, everybody in the body benefits and, and it, perpetuates the electability of the representatives. And that would seem to call for the, uh, the term limits folks to really amp up their game. Well, I think that it's also, it's also just another opportunity for Republicans, Democrats to work together for the good of their, their state. Um, you know, because realistically, you know, a lot of projects have cross district benefits or, you know, you need, you know, you know, there's no, there are very few states where you have a, uh, a homogenous house delegation, but something's going to benefit the whole state. So you've got to get lawmakers working together in a different way than, than if they're just fighting on ideological issues. Um, so, it, you know, well, that's exactly where I kind of wanted to go. And I, I, I see that we're down to about two minutes here. So, so let me, let me maybe tee you up to, to, go along on that thought about Republicans and Democrats working together. Because, you know, we do a lot of talk on the show. Paul's Democrat. I'm a Democrat. So we, we do tend to take a, a bit of a, a Democrat's perspective on this. But I, I point I point out that um, everything that Paul accomplished in Congress 
involved working with Republicans. When he created the Northern Border Development Commission, which has invested $40 million in economic development in the North country of New Hampshire, it was with Republicans. We passed Michelle's law to provide health care to young people. It was with Republicans. So I just look at, at something like that, and I, 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 wonder, I wonder if you see a prospect for issues, um, areas uh, of more collaboration, um, you know, and, and, and more opportunities for Republicans and Democrats to work productively together uh, in the future. So we can end out on a hopeful note here. <laughs> well, I think, and I'll also try and bring the conversation full circle because I, I actually think, you know, we were just talking about how, what we're really talking about is changing the center of gravity in the institutions and, and the political incentives. So, you know, I, I think that, uh, you know, we have a moment right now where, you know, there's a lot of discussion and it is unfortunately partisan about, uh, about mail-in voting and the need for a safe election. But that, this can be a moment to start, you look at, there was some great analysis done of Colorado system, which is a mail system, and it improved turnout uh, across every group, every demographic group, every income group, every education group. And it also um, improved turnout equally. Democrats and Republicans both got an 8% bump. So, you know, again, this is something that can change the dynamics and, and maybe there will be, you know, the opportunity to do those types of things or, you know, nonpartisan uh, districting reform, things that change the incentives inside and sort of free people up for the, the angels of their better nature. Um, you know, so I'll, and, and, and maybe, maybe, I'm, maybe I'm being a wild-eyed optimist when I, when I say these things, but I think they're, to your point, Matt, and the things we talked about in terms of the democracy agenda, I think those are the things that will make um, Congress more effective and quite frankly, make the lives of the Congress people better as they can be more constructive. Um, you know, by focusing on those kinds of things. It's off the record with Paul Hodes and Matt Robeson of WKXL. Ryan McConaughey, strategist extraordinaire. Thanks for joining us. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. It's been great to be here. I appreciate it. Folks, we're going to be back after this to wrap up. Don't go away. We're back. It's off the record with Paul Hodes and Matt Robeson on WKXL AM and FM streaming live over the internet at nhtalkradio.com for your binge listening pleasure podcast on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes. We've had a rollicking and hopeful discussion with Ryan McConaughey, a supreme strategist with lots of experience on Capitol Hill, working for the Senate, working for Congress, uh, now uh, working as a partner at Forbes Tate and giving us some hope about uh, what we might be able to see going forward. Matt, I felt hopeful listening to Ryan talk about what we might accomplish uh, if things worked out in November. Yeah, there's a lot of work to do, but uh, there's, uh, there's maybe some light at the end of the tunnel. Light at the end of the tunnel, people. Strategize, organize, and vote. It can't come soon enough. It's off the record with Paul Hodes and Matt Robeson. Thanks to our sponsors. Thanks for joining us, all you folks out there. We'll be back next week with more Off the Record. <laughs>